At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. The 18th century doctor, civic leader, and Renaissance man Benjamin Rush was one of the youngest signers of the Declaration of Independence, edited and named Thomas Paine's Common Sense, implemented medical practices that helped the Continental Army win the Revolutionary War, made sure Benjamin Franklin attended the Constitutional Convention, and shaped the medical and political landscape of the newly formed United States. Yet despite his outsized influence, the varied and interesting life he led, and the close relationships he had with other founding fathers like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams, Rush is hardly remembered today. That's because of just how close his relationship with his other founders was. Rush was a personal physician to them and their families, and after his death, they suppressed his legacy not wanting the intimate and unflattering details he recorded in his letters and journals to be publicized. In fact, his memoir was considered too dangerous to be published and wasn't found for nearly 150 years. My guest will reintroduce us to this forgotten figure. His name is Stephen Freed, and he's the author of Rush, Revolution, Madness, and Visionary Doctor Became a Founding Father. Today on the show, Stephen takes us through Rush's fascinating life, from his self-made rise out of an inauspicious childhood to how he's able to reconcile an estranged Jefferson and Adams before his death and what Stephen has learned from studying a character who lived through very fraught and not totally unfamiliar times. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash rush. Stephen Freed, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. So you have written a biography about a founding father, but it's not Benjamin Franklin. It's not George Washington, not Thomas Jefferson or John Adams. It's about a guy that I think a lot of people haven't heard of. It's this doctor named Benjamin Rush. And Rush was an interesting character because he was close to a lot of the founders. In fact, he was the the personal physician for a lot of these guys. Uh, he also kind of acted as the go-between with the founders when they had drama and spats between each other. And when Rush died, a lot of the other founding fathers tried to suppress his story because they didn't want anything that was unflattering in the letters that they had written to each other to get out there in the public. So as a result of that, a lot of people just overlook Rush today, which is unfortunate because this guy had a big role in the American Revolution and also in the field of medicine in early America. So let's dig into the life of Benjamin Rush. We're going to introduce Excellent. the world to Rush. It needs, it needs to be done. Okay, so many of the founding fathers, they were aristocrats, landowners, part of the gentry. Some of them were self-made, like Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Rush was also self-made. Uh, so tell us about his upbringing and rise in the world. Well, you're right in separating the founders who were self-made and the ones who came into wealth. And Rush was definitely somebody who was self-made, both in medicine and in politics. So his family owned a farm outside of Philadelphia. His father was a blacksmith. He moved the family into town when Benjamin Rush was very young, and then he died when Rush was five. And so Rush's mom was a working mom. She opened a store 
on Market Street, right down the street from Benjamin Franklin's printing press. And she supported the family. She later married not very well. And so Rush was brought up by her and he was a Presbyterian, which is not one of the best religions to be in Philadelphia at this time, which was very Quaker and and very Church of England, later uh, Episcopal Church. So he was sent to a religious boarding school in Maryland that was run by uh, his mother's cousin. So his uncle. And maybe I have that wrong. It was definitely his uncle. And so, because he was considered quite gifted, he was really smart. He was a great talker. He had this really high forehead, even as a little kid, that people sort of notioned that there was so much going on in his head that it was like bursting out. But he was just extremely smart, made amazing connections, had an incredible memory, and was just utterly fascinated by everything intellectual, everything religious, everything scientific. And so he, went to this boarding school in Maryland, as did his younger brother. Many people from Philadelphia went to this boarding school. He then was admitted at age 14 to what became Princeton, then the College of New Jersey, as a junior, graduated in the next year at age 16, and then decided to apprentice as a physician. And so he apprenticed to a physician in Philadelphia, John Redman. And this is at a time when there were no American medical schools. So to get a medical degree, you had to go overseas. And so Rush apprenticed for several years. He actually started taking classes in what was, what became the first medical school in America at the College of Philadelphia, which Benjamin Franklin had started. And his mentors there were recently trained doctors who were quite brilliant, but then also fought over which of them started the school, which is the thing that Rush got caught in the middle of. But basically, you know, even the, among the doctors, some of them were rich guys who came from second and third generation doctors, and some of them were people who would work their way up. And so Rush was always considered somebody who was not born into money and never had a ton of money, but had amazing ideas. His brain was just so fascinating. And then, of course, he became people's doctors. So he had this interesting relationship with them all through this time. He's younger than the other founders, but he was like their young doctor who like gave them their first smallpox vaccination and they would ask him medical questions. Part of the reason that Adams and Jefferson didn't want their letters back and forth to rush become public is because they would often concern both political, religious issues, and then really personal medical issues like you know, I have really bad diarrhea. What should I do about that? <laughs> yeah, talking about poop. Uh, yeah. Even the founding fathers did it. Well, it's something that, that really, you really hit home and it's really impressed me about Rush. Ever since he was a child, very curious, this self-starter and something that he did that a lot of young upstarts did back in you know 17th century, 18th century is he had a commonplace book and the guy just wrote down everything. How did that mental habit shape him for the rest of his life? He did. You know, what's interesting, I found, you know, when I had the same question you had, and then I looked into it and I saw that even then there's apparently a debate about how memory works. Of course, we're still debating that. And the debate was, do you take notes and that makes you remember, or do you listen and not take notes and that makes you remember? Most of Rush's teachers thought you shouldn't take notes, but Rush took notes. And so what's wonderful is after a certain point, we have them. I mean, a lot of things that Rush wrote are gone. I'm still hoping they will bubble up somewhere. But his commonplace books are wonderful. 
And part of the value of them is, of course, he did it when he was a kid. He did it when he was a student. And then when he was in the Continental Congress, he kept them about what it was like to be in the Continental Congress. He would write little sketches about what he thought about the people in the Continental Congress. No holds barred. So he just he wrote a lot. And so we have a lot of it. We're missing a lot of it. But everything we have is what's really nice about it also is that he wasn't a formal writer. So he wrote in a style that we would today think of as almost like magazine writing. And it's part of the reason that he was such an accessible intellectual and such an accessible writer is because his writing style and, of course, his penmanship were really readable. And when you read them today, they seem quite contemporary. Let's talk about these uh, doctors that he, they're medical school teachers. Uh, it was Morgan, and then the other guy was uh, Shippen. Yeah, so, so Rush has a really interesting young life. So he decides to become a doctor, and in 1865, he begins an apprenticeship with John Redmond, who's a very established doctor. And then during the next couple of years, two young, brilliant doctors come home from Edinburgh, which is the top medical school in the world, to set up their lives in Philadelphia. One of them is John Morgan, and John Morgan is like Rush, a guy who comes from relative poverty and has worked his way up. The other is William Shippen Jr., whose doc, whose father is already a big deal doctor. Shippen comes back, starts the first anatomy class ever taught in America, which Rush was one of the first students in, and was doing live dissections, which was quite controversial. And these were the first classes like this in America. And then Morgan came back and actually asked the college if he could start a medical school. Morgan and Shippen had been friends. Shippen went nuts when Morgan said he would hire him for the medical school rather than name him as the co-founder. And they never like spoke again unless they had to. And Rush, because he'd been mentored by both of them, he had been Morgan students too, was always stuck in the middle of them. And Morgan helped him a lot. Shippen went out of his way not to help him. And what's interesting is, of course, these doctors not only were Benjamin Rush's main uh, mentors in Philadelphia, they turned out to be the main doctors of George Washington's army. And so Rush ended up getting caught in the middle of their fight again during the war, which caused Washington no end of disbelief that doctors could be so petty and stupid when something so important as the Revolutionary War was going on that they were fighting over just stupid stuff. And so, so Rush learned early on that people can be petty and jealous and competitive and that you had to deal with that. And so he, was, he became very smart about that. But at the same time, he was very opinionated and sometimes he wouldn't stop, even though he knew like how it would go down. So another important figure from Philadelphia that had a inf- big influence on Rush's life is Benjamin Franklin. So you said that he sure. lived down the street from Benjamin Franklin. Did they know each other as like, did he know, like he go over to Ben's house and be like, hey, Uncle Ben, you know, what's, no. <laughs> I mean, what was the nature of their relationship? No, you know, what's interesting, one, people forget that Benjamin Franklin was in Europe during many of the important periods in the American pre-revolution and revolution. So even though Franklin, Franklin's wife and family lived down the street from the Rushes, we have no evidence that they knew each other in their early years. What we know is that when Rush went to medical school, you know, in his late teens, he was he and another doctor he went with wrote letters to Franklin to introduce themselves to him and let them know that they were fellow Pennsylvanians who would come to England and come to Scotland for, for training. And Franklin wrote them some letters of introduction. He was in London. And he so he introduced them to some of the uh, Enlightenment figures who were in Edinburgh, and that was wonderful for Rush. 
And then after Rush graduated from medical school, he came to London. He finally met Franklin. What's really interesting is that Rush kept a diary of his time in Edinburgh, a diary of his time in London, and a diary of his time late in France, which, which is where Franklin helped him go. The London diary is missing, and no one knows why. The other ones we have. It could be because Franklin... You know, he saw something, you know, Franklin was not considered sort of like the best husband. Um, you know, who knows what was in those diaries. But so we don't know a lot of details about what happened when the two Bens met. But the, it, it was a really important thing for Benjamin Rush. Benjamin Franklin was a mentor of his his entire life, would send him letters from Europe about scientific issues, about medical issues, about political issues. And then interestingly, when Franklin came home, and was quite ill, Rush helped take care of him and also made sure that he got his due. I mean, what's really interesting is that people forget that the Pennsylvania delegation to the Constitution was not going to include Franklin because he was too sick. And Rush is the one who insisted, it's like, hey, this guy is Benjamin Franklin. You are not going to not include him in the Constitution of this country, even if we have to carry him on a litter over to the meetings, which in fact is what they did. So, they had a really interesting relationship. It would be great if we knew more about it, but a lot of things have been lost. But what's very clear is that Rush saw himself as somebody who could continue Franklin's work. And keep in mind that in Philadelphia, we have a different idea about Franklin's work than the nation does in terms of his contributions to the Declaration or to the Constitution. Franklin was the inventor of these sort of voluntary associations that would solve social problems that we that they didn't think the government would solve. So he created the first fire company, he created the first library, he created the first hospital as things that people should create as donations because he didn't know the government would ever do these things. And so Rush picked up his work after he was dying and died uh, and tried to continue this work uh, because you know it's interesting. We talk a lot about public health today. You know, back then there was no public health. You know, the closest thing they had to public health were the things that doctors volunteered to do. Pennsylvania Hospital was free for poor people. It was not a hospital like we think of today. Doctors volunteered their time to take care of the indigent there. That's what it was. That's what a hospital was. People with money were treated at home. Even they, when they had surgery, they had it at home. So what Rush was trying to do was continue the intellectual life that Franklin had created and I think to, to a large degree, he really did. His role at the University of Pennsylvania during the period, especially during the period when the capital was in Philadelphia, is really not un understood as well as it could be. But when Franklin died, I mean, there was a real need to make sure that the ideas that he had about what it meant to be a citizen, you know, what it meant to be an American, what our responsibilities were to our fellow man, especially to poor people and imprisoned people, you know, Rush thought about these things a lot. And so their relationship, the, the artifacts we have of it are amazing and fascinating. And I continue to believe that there are more that we will find uh, because, you know, some things are still in private hands. A lot of things about the revolutionary period were bought by collectors a long time ago. We still haven't seen them. So I continue to hold out hope. Uh, okay. So early on in Rush's medical career, like you said, he loved to write. 
and he started writing pamphlets. This was the equivalent of a blog, right? If you wanted to get the word out back in revolutionary times, instead of starting a blog, you'd start publishing pamphlets and start selling them. I don't know if it's the same as a blog because it was a way of making money. It was yeah. almost a way of publishing right. a personal how about a How about a substack? It's more like a substack. A paid, yeah, a paid. I mean, it was more like a zine. Remember zines? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah where you, which you would make and you'd print them up yourself and you'd sell them like an alternative bookstore. Right. That's more like what pamphlets Yeah, are. so he started putting these out, but he's writing about health. And he yes. advocated for things like, he was kind of ahead of his times. He was advocating for temperance, like, hey, guys, take it easy on the hard liquor. Also said people should start exercising, which was kind of weird for the 18th century. But then his health writings, they started to get a little political. I mean, he still wasn't in the public sphere as a, as a, as a politician, but he did start getting political. So how did his health writing lead to revolutionary rhetoric? Well, so the, the first big thing that he published was, you're correct, it, it was a guide basically for wealthy people to take better care of themselves. Because um, he, he, when he came out of medical school, his practice was very mixed. What's cool about him is that his practice was mixed by race, by socioeconomic class, and many people couldn't afford to pay. So he was hoping to get some paying customers. So he put out a pamphlet, which is really like the first self-help book. And you're right, it talks about temperance, although we always have to remember that back in Russia's day, temperance didn't include wine and beer because wine was medicine and beer was not considered to be something dangerous alcoholically. So temperance was hard liquors. It's one of the first places that talks about the people exercising, although you can always see Russia always has like a political edge. So he talks about the need for people to exercise, but then he can't resist making an abolitionist statement because he's totally against slavery. And he basically says, well, of course, the reason you have to exercise is because all the things you're supposed to be doing outdoors, you know, you enslave people to do. So if you didn't do that, you wouldn't have to like learn how to exercise. So part of the thing is that Rush always had those kinds of comments, which he would give a whole speech. And then at the end, he would make a comment having to do with abolition and how bad slavery is. He'd make a comment about independence and just create a hot button issue when he wasn't originally talking about something else. That was just Rush. So the leading abolitionist of the day, Anthony Benize, read Rush's thing and realized that Rush could write on abolition issues. So he encouraged Rush to write a pamphlet on abolition. And, and this is, uh, it came out in 1773. It's so early, and it's certainly the earliest of any of the writings of the founders on these issues. And so he wrote this pamphlet, The Self Help for Rich People. He wrote a, a pamphlet on abolition. And that actually led to him being asked to be one of the ghost writers for the proclamation that led to the Boston Tea Party. So like every city was going to have a tea party. Boston just happened to do theirs first. So the proclamation about why tea shouldn't be able to come into the country, the Philadelphia group that wrote their proclamation, everybody liked that one best. So that one was in the Boston newspapers, which led to the Boston Tea Party. In Philadelphia, they stopped the boat with the tea before it came to Philadelphia. And so these were the kinds of things. He was known as somebody who could be a really good writer. He was also a really fast writer. And so people saw initially that he was smart, that he was, had a lot of interesting ideas, and that he could write things that the public would understand. And I think a lot of what he did was trying to explain ideas to people as best he could. And he was responsible for that in a lot of different ways. I mean, many people don't know, for example, that he is the one who encouraged Thomas Paine to write what became common sense because he believed that somebody needed to explain the idea of independence, especially to people in Philadelphia who were not so into it because Philadelphia was the most powerful city in the country at that point. They had the most to lose by changing the world they lived in. So Rush didn't 
write it himself. He'd started a pamphlet, but he had gotten so much in so much trouble because of his abolition pamphlet. He lost a lot of his customers because they found out he wrote the abolition pamphlet, that he instead encouraged Payne to write this pamphlet on independence, the goal of which was to explain why independence was a good, important thing and not something to be scared of. And the process in 1775 of Russian Payne that fall, you know, Rush edited these pages as Payne wrote them. And then um, he was the one who found the publisher for it, and he actually named it. So their relationship, I wish there was, we knew more about it. We know about it mostly because Rush talked about it later. Because at the time, it was a big mystery who wrote Common Sense, you know, because of course the British would come and kill them. So, but it's, it's really fascinating, his ideas about explaining complicated ideas to the public. And then later after the revolution, he's trying to wrestle with the idea of what is an American citizen? What are the responsibilities of a, of a person in this cr- country we just created? I mean, we're still debating this like every day. Uh, what's interesting is that Rush lays out a lot of the basic challenges because they're hardwired in the country. They're not about the internet. They're not about you know any pat, any recent president. They're about America. And Rush identified that immediately, and that's why his writing on this is really you know it's timeless. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, this part of his life where it's going up the revolution, it's like the early 1770s. He's a great writer. He he has opinions that he wants to share, but at the same time, he struggles with, okay, I got a, a growing medical career here. I, I, I have to kind of figure out how to balance my ideals with sort of the day-to-day, I got to pay the bills. Exactly. He is not rich. And he every time he does something political, he knows there will be consequences. Yeah. And so he, he kind of, as you say, he kind of played behind the scenes. He ghost wrote some things. He encouraged Thomas Paine to, to write Common Sense. So he, he sticks to the margins when it comes to political life. But then Somehow he ends up being one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. So how did how did that how how did he go from behind the scenes guy to I'm putting my my life on the line? Well, he he started being more on the scenes in 1775 and 1776. He got married in early 1776 to Julius Stockton, whose father Richard Stockton was what well, sort of the most powerful lawyer in New Jersey, and whose family had given the land for Princeton, who also became a, a signer. And so he started getting more involved in 1776, and he was asked to write the, you know, not only was Thomas Jefferson writing a national, supposedly national Declaration of Independence that everybody would sign on to, but each state, each, you know, uh, colony had to write their own Declaration of Independence. So Rush was actually the leader of the writing group for the Pennsylvania Declaration of Independence. So he was involved at that point. And then Rush had been involved. The only politics he'd been involved in were the state constitution. And keep in mind, there was no federal constitution. So the state constitutions really mattered. So he starts getting more involved. And then, you know, what happens is, you know, he's close with this group of people who are the delegation from Pennsylvania. And one of the most outspoken members of the delegation is is John Dickinson, who's a very well-known lawyer, older than Rush. Rush has known him for a long time. Rush's brother worked in his law firm. And Dickinson felt very strongly that the Declaration of Independence was coming too soon. So he wouldn't sign it because he thought it was too soon to declare independence. And in a very well-documented and dramatic series of events, he leaves the Continental Congress in July, in late June, early July of 1776. And Rush is immediately elected to take his place and sign. So out of nowhere, 
Benjamin Rush, who's, who's certainly well known to all these people. Like Jefferson comes over to his house. Adams comes over to his house. Washington comes over to his house to eat. They hang out at the city tavern. You know, he's like their doctor and their Philadelphia friend during these Continental Congresses. But all of a sudden, he's one of them. And he signs the declaration. And we have in his commonplace book exactly what it was like. He wrote about what the debates were like, which is some of the best descriptions we have of the debates of the Continental Congress during 1776. And he quickly makes a name for himself there, but he also quickly feels that he wants to be helping on the battlefield because, as you know, the war is starting to come closer to Pennsylvania. So, you know, they got their butts kicked in New York. The British are sort of coming down through New Jersey and Rush wants to be there. So in the fall, late fall of 1776, he leaves the Congress so that he can go treat patients on the battlefield and help as a doctor. So, and the great value of this for us narratively is that he's with Washington at the banks of the Delaware the night before Washington crosses the Delaware. And our descriptions of what Washington was thinking that night, these really famous images of Washington writing victory or death on little pieces of paper, these all come from Rush's commonplace books and from, and from letters that he wrote. Because he was with Washington, Washington sent orders with him back to the different groups. You know, there were four groups along the Delaware. They were different state militias. So Rush went from Washington's group back to the Pennsylvania militia with orders that Washington gave him. And through Rush's writing and through looking at all the details of this, you can actually recreate what it was like, not only for Washington's crossing, but for the other groups crossing. And that, you know, that's what I really tried to do. I tried to make even the crossing of the Delaware something more of like, what was it like for everybody? Because, you know, crossing the Delaware, Delaware is not that wide, but it was frozen. So there was a lot of big ice flows. And of course, they were taking things, they were floating horses across the Delaware and they were floating cannons across the Delaware, like on barges and rafts. So this is, none of this is easy, but we have great descriptions of it. And Rush crosses, he's with the troops, he goes to Trenton. He takes care of troops that were treated at the Battle of Trenton. Then he goes to Princeton, where he went to college. And the Battle of Princeton is on and just ending. And he is caring for patients on the main grounds of Princeton, where he went to school. Uh, and the British had been in, uh, in the chapel, where he had taken lots of his classes. So it's incredibly powerful. And, and also, at the same time, his father-in-law, Richard Stockton, was kidnapped by the British. So he also was waiting to see if his father-in-law was dead. So it's very dramatic. And Rush just gives you, it's like everything you already knew about this stuff. Plus the way I think of it is like Rush had another camera running in many of the events of the Revolutionary War. And like no one realized that the film didn't get developed for hundreds of years. So Rush is always giving you just sort of a different perspective on this, but he's, he's getting more and more involved in the war and he's, also, ultimately, less and less involved in Pennsylvania politics. So he gets voted out of office after all these experiences in war. And then he's immediately made Surgeon General of the Middle Department, which is the biggest department in the war in the spring of 1777. The problem being, he's perfect for this job, but his boss is William Shippen Jr., his old mentor, tour mentor from Philadelphia, who hates his guts. And so, in fact, they are fighting about everything all the time. One of the things that Rush does at this time to make sure that his ideas get out there is he writes a very powerful medical treatise about taking care of soldiers during war, which became the first important piece of writing about medical, uh, about war medicine. 
And what was really interesting about it is it's not so much about what you do on the battlefield. It's about preventive medicine because Rush believed very much that they didn't have anywhere near the kind of treatments that they needed. And, you know, many of the injuries that they had where people's arms are being blown off. I mean, all they could do is amputate. But what he believed was that hospitals were dangerous places full of infection. And that what was really important was for to do preventive medicine with soldiers, really simple things. I mean, this seems so stupid now, but, you know, soldiers weren't told to go to the bathroom far away from their tents. So people got, you know, dysentery and other infections because of stuff like that. Rush had to tell them to do that. He also popularized the the crew cut, you know, the army crew cut in America by explaining how keeping your hair short would be healthier. And so this was the thing that he wrote. He actually published it in the newspaper. And then George Washington later had it printed and given to all the soldiers. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. And now back to the show. Yeah, Rush early on, he recognized that most people in war, most soldiers in war died because of disease, not because of the guy exactly. hit, hit by it. And so he, yeah, he played a big role. I mean, he, like people, like whenever you think about war, you always think about the guns and the the cannons, but the medicine, like if you get, if, if you have six soldiers, like you're not going to, you're not going to win. And so he, I mean, like he played a big role in helping the Americans win the war. He did. And, but he, and he also got thrown out one because he and Shippen fought about everything. But two, he was obsessively concerned that the government wasn't spending enough money taking care of soldiers and with preventive medicine and then actual hospital medicine. And what's ironic is, you know, one of the biggest turning points in Russia's life. So he, you know, in 1777, he becomes Surgeon General of the Middle Department. He lives through a terrible Battle of Brandywine. America loses every war in the, the summer and fall of that year, 1777. He's there at all of them just watching just horror. And then he wants Washington to pay more attention to this and to give more money for medical care. And so he writes to Washington and Russia doesn't write back fast enough. They're separated because the capital moved and Rush is separated from his wife because she's somewhere safe. Adams is gone and Rush could be pretty manic if he wasn't calmed down. He's a pretty kind of bipolar guy and he always needed people to reality check him. And he there was no reality check on him. And so he was so upset that Washington wouldn't write back to him. And he was hearing from the generals that Washington had made some questionable choices. And of course, they were losing every fight. He wrote a very famous letter to Patrick Henry anonymously, basically questioning whether Washington's choices were good and whether he was the right guy to go forward with. And 
This was pretty blasphemous for the time. He wrote a similar letter to John Adams, which didn't make any big deal because it just went to John Adams. We actually discovered a third letter that he wrote to his wife that that is in a, a library in Philadelphia. But he clearly was kind of losing it uh, because he felt that he didn't have uh, imp- he wasn't impacting Washington's decision making. And in fact, it just turned out that Washington was busy and didn't get back to him because in the time that that Rush wrote these letters saying we need more money for medicine. And then he freaked out and wrote this letter to Patrick Henry questioning whether Washington was the right guy. Washington wrote back to him and said he agreed with him and that they would do these kinds of things, but it was too late. And later, Patrick Henry shared that letter with George Washington. And George Washington never forgave Rush for writing that letter because Washington had heard all these complaints. I mean, it was a very complainy time. This is leading up to Valley Forge. It's a tough time in the war. But for Washington to see in handwriting of somebody who was his friend, and Rush was his friend at that point, and was a former congressman, somebody who mattered, that he had questioned whether Washington was making the right choices. Washington never forgave him for that. And their relationship went from friendly to frenemy, and everybody knew it. And over the years, some people tried to repair the relationship, but it was not to be repaired. And when Washington died, he made sure that that letter got into the hands of his biographer so people would know that Rush wrote this letter questioning him at the darkest moment. And and this impacted Rush's life all through the rest of his life because people knew that he and Washington were no longer friends. All right. So after the war, Rush decides to take a break from political life. It was, it, like you said, he's kind of manic. He's probably not suited. His personality is not suited for public life. So what did he do instead? What did he do with his career? Well, he went back to being a doctor. I mean, as soon as the British left Philadelphia, he went home and uh, he tried to build up his practice again. He tried to build up also some hospital work and A lot of that had to wait until the war was actually over. But then, you know, when the war was over, he became very active. He wanted to become not only a a powerful doctor, but a writer who would help shape the post-war period because his belief was that winning the war was an unbelievable accomplishment, but figuring out how to do what to do with this new country was much harder. And he wanted to be part of that discussion. So he basically wrote things saying like the war's over, but it really isn't over because the revolution is just starting. And one of the things he wanted to focus on was education. So he felt that that if the populace wasn't educated, there would be no way they would understand their responsibilities as citizens. So he, he starts the first rural college in America, Dickinson College in Carlisle. He starts that himself. He writes out a plan for the first public school systems to be put in place in Pennsylvania, but is influential all over the country. He starts a second college called Franklin College, which is now Franklin and Marshall. And then he starts writing all these different things that really deal with uh, important issues that he hopes will influence the process of writing the Constitution and figuring out how to govern. Because you know the country is really mushy in terms of what to do after the war. So we tend to forget like the period from 1781 until the constitution is signed to us. That's just like, whatever, but that's, you know, that's like a really dangerous time. Anything could have happened. And so it's very interesting to see what rush did to try to make people think about these big ideas. And by the end of that period, he, he was not on the constitution convention. He was there and he, he was the leader of the Pennsylvania delegation to uh, approve it, but he very much had a hand in a lot of these debates and by the time that was all done, he had become the most important doctor in America. 
So John Morgan, who had who had become was the most important doctor, died in 1789. Rush took over for him, and then the the colleges that were in Pennsylvania consolidated into the University of Pennsylvania, and then you have this whole period. You know, when when Philadelphia becomes the capital, those ten years are unbelievably formative for America, and, and obviously unbelievably formative for Philadelphia. And Rush is like the god, the medical god of Philadelphia, political advisor to everybody. He's close friends with Adams and Jefferson, which might not mean anything to us today, but that was like being close friends to the top Republican and the top Democrat. And he was, he, both of them confided in him and he was sort of caught in the middle of them a lot. And so his time during that is fascinating and he matters in a huge way to all the players and both in terms of medicine, in terms of politics, and also just in terms of it's his city, you know, it's like he's also like the editor of Philadelphia magazine. So he knows where all the good restaurants are and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, Abigail Adams says, like, it's such so great to have, you know, Benjamin Rush as your friend when you have to live in Philadelphia. He kind of knows everything and everybody. So his his life becomes real different and real fascinating. And it's so well documented during this time. The letters between him and Adams, it's it's well documented until Adams comes to town. I'll tell you, one of the things that kills you as a historian, when the characters you love are all in the same town, the letters disappear. (laughs) You know, so there's all this amazing, all these amazing letters between Adams and Jefferson, Adams and Rush. And while Adams is overseas, and then when Adams is in New York during their brief time in the capitals in New York, and then as soon as he gets to Philadelphia, there's like a quiet time. And then after he leaves and after the capital leaves and moves to Washington, there's tons of letters. Okay, so uh, Rush after the war, he he picks up Franklin's mantle of creating voluntary, you know, Tocquevillian voluntary associations to help this new country develop. He called them Republican machines, right? So these individuals. Well, no, he called he said the individual people needed to be Republican machines. Right. He was talking about that as the personal responsibility of each person to be a machine to fulfill its responsibilities to the new republic. Right. So he's, he's doing that, but at the same time, he's also building up his medical career, and, but he takes a really keen interest in mental illness. Um, and this was yes. revolutionary for the time. A lot of people didn't know what to, what to think of mentally ill people, but he, he thought that we could cure mentally ill people with, with medicine. What, what was going on there? Well, so basically, you know, this is a time when medicine is starting to become a little bit more scientific. And, you know, when it comes to mental illness and addiction, mental illness and addiction were for many centuries seen as either human weaknesses or failures of faith. And, you know, Rush as a doctor knew that neither of those were true and that alcoholism, that mental illness, depression, mania, these were medical conditions. He assumed that the only way they could be treated if they could be treated was by medicine. And it was very important for him to make people understand that we needed to treat the people whose brains were different than ours in a gracious way, in a caring way, in a medical way. And, you know, because people with mental illness and alcoholism at that time were locked in the basement of Pennsylvania Hospital. They weren't treated. They were just like jailed, you know, to keep them from hurting other people. And people were allowed to come and pay to look at them, right? You see these images in movies all the time. It's horrible. They also weren't heated, these cells, because the belief at the time was that people with mental illness couldn't feel cold. So in the 1780s, Rush took this on. He knew it would be hard. But at the same time, he also provided a place to take care of people. So as I said to you, you know, Pennsylvania Hospital was for poor people, except for the part of it that was for people with mental illness. 
because those people couldn't be taken care of at home. So Rush was treating both people who lived on the street who were brought into the hospital, uh, and he treated some of the children of, of the founding fathers. He eventually, in the 1790s, forced them to build a second building only for people who had mental illness and addiction. And so the, the Pennsylvania Hospital, which is still there, you can still tour it, but you know the original 8th Street building had cells in the basement. He forced them to build a mirror building on 9th Street only for people with mental illness and addiction. And he began writing down what happened there, you know, the beginnings of talk therapy, the beginnings of occupational therapy, all happened there. And the irony, the utter irony of this is he does this for decades. And then his eldest son, who's a physician, who's interested in these things too, his master's thesis was about suicidality, becomes mentally ill, has a huge psychotic break, tries to kill himself many times. And ends up being Rush's patient. So this is the doctor who Rush expected to take over his practice. Instead, he had a psychotic break in his last late 20s after killing his best friend in a duel. And he ended up being Rush's patient. And he lived the rest of his life at Pennsylvania Hospital in the new mental illness wards that Rush had created. So the behind the scenes stories, uh, you know, just as they are today, people don't talk enough about how alcohol, how other addictions, how mental illness affects life, but it certainly does. You know, the biggest thing that happened in John Adams's life was that his son died of alcoholism. It's not something that people talk about a lot, but I guarantee you that that was a huge thing that hung over John Adams. So, you know, people were never afraid to talk to Rush about these things because they knew he understood and that he believed there was a medical approach, even though, look, as then as today, it's really hard to treat people with mental illness. There's no silver bullet. There's no easy way to make it all go away. So uh, in 1793, there was a yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia. Yes. And yellow, yellow fever is awful. Like you, you, you get it and you kind of have a headache and then maybe some nausea. But when it gets bad, your skin starts turning yellow, you get jaundiced, you start vomiting blood. It was awful. They didn't know what, what spread it. It's mosquitoes, right? That's what spreads yellow fever. Likely. Yeah, but it was 100 years after that before right. they learned that. So, so Rush, you know, most, most of the, everyone in Philadelphia, they left. They got out of town. It's like, we're going to get out of this out of Philadelphia. Rush, he stays there, and he's just treating patients. And despite the fact that he could be, you know, come down with yellow fever at any moment, what was his role in the yellow fever epidemic? So the yellow fever, look, there had been yellow fever before. But there had never been an epidemic like the one in Philadelphia in 1793. And again, remember, Philadelphia was the U.S. capital at that time. So the people who were fleeing were like George Washington and people like that. So ironically, the yellow fever epidemic came right on the heels of Russia had been working with the black clergy in Philadelphia to build the first free black church. And they just had this dinner to celebrate the roof raising of the first free black church, which was fascinating because all the white people who helped with it, they were served by the black members of the community and by the clergy. And then they got up and served the black members of the community. It's such an, an amazing scene that Rush actually writes about to his wife. And it would have been so great for people to be able to hold on to that wonderful feeling. But you know, yellow fever came immediately afterwards. And yellow fever was both a medical challenge and a racial challenge, sadly, because what happened was the black clergy who Rush was close with volunteered to help when all the doctors left. They did it, I think, primarily because it was the right thing to do. The medical literature actually said that they were less likely to get the illness, but honestly, I don't think they cared about that. They cared about helping. And it turned out within weeks, they knew that the medical literature was wrong and everybody got it the same. But 
you know, 10% of the population of Philadelphia died in three months. And Philadelphia was the biggest city in the country at that point. Every treatment that people gave didn't work. And what we know from going through COVID is that when smart doctors and dumb doctors don't know what to do and nothing works, they just take off after each other. And then that leaves us, all the sick people, just even more freaked out. And that's exactly what happened here. And it got political. You know, uh, Alexander Hamilton announced that he had been cured of the yellow fever by his doctor who didn't like Rush. So he published his thing, his treatment, which Rush knew didn't work. And then Rush went after him. It's, it's all politicized. It's all a mess. It's actually extremely well documented. We have all of Rush's letters that he wrote almost every day. We have Rush's letters from his wife back to him. She's in Princeton with their kids, scared to death that she's never going to see her husband again. Their friends are dropping like flies every day. Every treatment they do doesn't work. So Rush keeps increasing. He does more bloodletting. He doubles the bloodletting. He doubles the calomel. He doubles the bark, which are all the things that you treat people during this time. Nothing works. Rush got yellow fever himself, as did Richard Allen, one of the two pastors who was involved in the care. Luckily, they both lived. Many of Rush's staff died. Rush's sister, who stayed in town to take care of him, she died of it. And it's just, it's unbelievably horrible and it's unbelievably knowable because we have all this, all the writings of it. So you can know what happened during those, those days at a very close level. So there's a, there's a lot to read about the yellow fever epidemic. And I, I do fear that people have strong opinions about it without knowing that much about it. The more you go into its history, the more you learn not only about medicine, but just about American politics, because this is also the birthplace of American partisanship. You know, a lot of American partisanship was created by Alexander Hamilton in 1791, two, three, four. This is when the parties split. This is when there came to be a Republican and Democratic version of everything. And, you know, it was, it was a, probably a natural process, but this is when it happened. And yellow fever contributed to that too. So I would only urge people when they read about this, and I, I hope you do read about it, to see it as a, as a medical phenomenon and see it as a political and an American phenomenon, because we are replaying a lot of these things today. Yeah, I thought it was funny. Hamilton, you know, he wrote that thing about his his cure. They called it the, the Federalist cure. It was the Federalist cure. Yeah. yeah. And then, but like some people thought it was a little too weenie, right? It wasn't enough. It was like, it's kind of wussy. And so you needed to do- It was nothing. Right. It was nothing. The treatment was like, let him sit there and give him water. Right. And then there's like the Democratic Republican cure, where it's a little, you had to be a little more aggressive with this thing. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, as I read this, I was like, this is just, this is a deja vu. Like this, more things change, the more they stay the same. Yep. Yeah. America, you know, the thing that's fascinating, and I never realized it until I did this book, America was America the minute it began. <laughs> and everything we think that came because of, oh, this technology or this world war, this kind of stuff, it's just all incrementalism from the beginning. I find that actually comforting. Yeah, I do too. Uh, because, I, because I think in every era, there are people who think, oh, we broke this thing. You know, it was really good until we broke it by doing this or doing that. But in fact, the fissures were there from the very beginning, and they are part of the country, and, the, and they're okay. But you have to, it, it, as long as you look at the founders and you don't see the founders as people who didn't think that, if you look at the founders and think that they didn't think that, you are not reading the founders closely enough. All right. So after the yellow fever epidemic, Rush survived. He spent the rest of his life still doing some doctor work, but then he's devoted a lot of time to reconnecting 
John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, because they became estranged. Why did Rush think that was important to do? Well, you know, first of all, you know, Rush in a way never recovered from the yellow fever epidemic. It became a thing that hung over him for years. It really hurt his business. It hurt his popularity. John Adams had to give him a job at the U.S. Mint so he could have money because his practice was so hurt by the politics of yellow fever. So it was really rough. And then, of course, the U.S. Capitol left Philadelphia, which Rush was crushed by, and went to Washington. So when Adams lost to Jefferson in the the election of 1800, which was unbelievably contentious, unbelievably contentious, the two of them didn't speak for years. And Adams left Washington in a huff, went back home, was unbelievably depressed. Rush and Jefferson stayed in some contact, but Rush and Adams were out of contact for five years. And these are guys who used to talk every day. And when they were apart, they would write to each other all the time. And then after five years, Adams sends Rush a letter. And he just says, like, you know, before one of us dies, we should talk again. And this letter triggers this unbelievable flurry of events, which are a lot of the reason we really understand the American Revolution. And here's why. So when this letter was sent in 1905, Adams and Jefferson had not spoken in five years. And you could argue that Adams Jefferson created this country. You know, the intellectual, the, the basis of this country, Adams and Jefferson created it. Rush certainly felt that. He felt that the dissolution of their friendship was an unbelievably dangerous thing for America. That if Adams and Jefferson could be torn apart by partisanship, what did that mean for the rest of the country? If the guys who invented the intellectual underpinnings of the country couldn't talk to each other even after all this stuff. So he was fascinated to be back in touch with Adams. His letters back and forth to Adams are very much sort of treatment for Adams's depression, but they're also just an amazing back and forth between two founders talking later in their lives about was it all worth it and what did we do and what should happen next? You know, and a lot of what we understand about the American Revolution doesn't come from the real-time writing when it was happening. It comes from these later letters, which are unbelievably detailed and fascinating. So these go on for a number of years. And part of what Rush starts seeing is that he understands that part of what this letter writing can be is that he maybe can get Adams and Jefferson back together. So you see in these letters to Adams, the beginnings of this sort of, again, it's founding father family therapy. It's like, what do I have to do to get Adams to think about that he and Jefferson should be friends again? And he starts doing it with Jefferson too. And we have all these letters. So you know, he also, during this time, Jefferson makes him the medical person for Lewis and Clark. So Lewis comes to Philadelphia. Rush tells him what to do before Lewis and Clark goes out. So Rush and Jefferson are back and forth. But he gets it in his head that these letters can be the reason that Adams and Jefferson get back together. And for years, then he starts sort of saying to them, like, you guys could still be friends. You know, don't you miss each other? You know, it's, it's some of it's real high school stuff. You know, he's like, you know, I heard from a friend in Boston that Adam says he still loves you. I mean, I'm serious. This is like what some of the stuff is. The letters are so unbelievably personal. They're great. You can understand why Adams Jefferson didn't want anybody to see them. And finally, in 1812, so again, so these Adams Jefferson haven't talked in 12 years, and Rush has been on Adams for seven years. <laughs> to interact with Jefferson. And they finally write to each other. And they finally rekindle their friendship only because of Rush. And, you know, this is fascinating because, you know, Rush is much younger than them. And Rush is doing this because he's afraid one of them will die before their relationship is rekindled. And Rush only lives another year. And they live another 13 years. 
right? So they end up dying, you know, in 1826. And we then have letters between them from 1812 through 1826 that are remarkably in-depth that go over many aspects of the American Revolution that we otherwise wouldn't know because Rush started this letter writing thing. And after Rush died, Rush's son, Richard, who was in the government, was in the letter writing too, as was, of course, John Quincy Adams, Adams's son. Because, you know, Rush's son and Adams's son are the only founding father's sons who mattered in the U.S. government. So John Quincy Adams obviously became president. Richard Rush was attorney general. He was secretary of state. He was John Quincy Adams's uh, vice presidential candidate the last time John Quincy Adams ran and lost. But they were they were lifelong friends. So the interactions between Rush, Adams, and Jefferson while they're all alive, and then after Rush dies between Adams and Jefferson, John Quincy and Richard Rush are the basis of a lot of our understanding of how the founders looked back on the American Revolution and the retelling of some of the stories that some of them we didn't know before. Some of them just, there's a different version of them in these letters. They're so interesting and they're so human and they're ultimately just two friends. And again, these guys never saw each other, right? Adams and Rush never saw each other after the Capitol left in 1800 and Jefferson and Adams never saw each other either. This was a friendship completely through letters over decades. And it, it is the basis of so much of our understanding of the American Revolution. It's amazing. So after researching and studying and writing about Rush's life and um, you know spending so much time with him, are there any lessons you've taken from him? A lot. Oh, a lot. I mean, first of all, you know, I never understood how fascinating and personal the American Revolution was and how close it was to not happening. Right. I just, I just don't think that anybody ever tried to explain to me the real human drama of the period leading up to the war and the war itself and the period after the war and the writing of the constitution and just the creation of a government and the movement of the government up through the war of 1812. And with Rush, you get basically, you know, everything. He died in 1813. So you get up through the war of 1812. His son is in Washington during the war of 1812. And he and Adams are talking about this because it's like Richard's there. Why is he, you know, doing this and putting himself in danger? So you really get to see the early years of America and especially what's interesting is this is the time when American history wasn't taken seriously by Americans. You know, I mean, Independence Hall wasn't called Independence Hall until the 1820s when Lafayette came back and and started they started talking about American history because America had been around long enough that they could think about its history. You know, Independence Hall was going to be knocked down and the Liberty Bell was going to be melted because no one thought that any of it was that interesting. So as America became a real country that was going to last which they all weren't sure it would, then people started understanding that its history was going to matter. And so I feel like I met a really human version of the American history of this country, and I'm really grateful to have it, one. And two, it really, you know, I did a lot of this stuff during the last years of the Obama administration and during the Trump administration. That's what I was writing. And, you know, it's really important when your country is tearing itself apart to understand the history of that and to be able to put it in context and to know that it's horrible, but it's not that new and it's American and it is in America to survive it. And you learn that from Rush and Alexander Hamilton screaming at each other on the streets of Philadelphia in 1791. You learn, you know, you learn that from the fact that this country was built on people screaming at each other. And so that I have to say, I found very comforting 
And I've also just found Rush really interesting. I mean, for everything that I learned about him, I've learned many more things since the book came out. I mean, Rush's story wasn't that well documented. We did, I, I hope, a pretty good job in the book. Uh, but we've continued to do research. We put up a with Penn, we built a Benjamin Rush portal so that people could get easy access to everything that Rush wrote that's digitized. And we've actually been working with the uh, National Archives and with University of Virginia Rotunda Press to try to get Rush's letters to be all available for free so people can read them and read his autobiography because they're key parts of the American story. And a lot of people don't know where to go read them. They've seen the quotes from them, but I've read a lot of history books by well-known historians where they're quoting secondary sources on things that are in Rush's writing. I assume because they can't get a copy of the original piece. So we're trying to get people so they can access Rush's actual letters, Rush's actual commonplace books, Rush's actual memoir, and see what he wrote to be able to put those things in the proper perspective. But I must say, it's not just because because yellow fever, COVID made yellow fever seem really interesting, and politics made uh, you know a lot of Rush things seem really interesting. You know, Rush is just a different way of seeing American history, and I think a comforting way. The way I think of it is this: you know, Rush wasn't a politician; he was a doctor. So politicians see problems differently than doctors do. I think politicians see problems as things that if they pass a law, the problem will go away. And doctors know that isn't true, that in every generation, disease comes and that their jobs do the best job they can and to innovate within that. And to see the history of the country through the eyes of a physician who is a politician second, rather than somebody who's a politician or a businessman first is a real different way to see the country. And I find it to be a more comforting way to see the country. Well, Stephen, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work? Well, you know, the book is called Rush. It's it's anywhere you want to find it. I have a website at www.stephenfried.com, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-F-R-I-E-D.com. And uh, links to all the other stuff that, that I do come from that website. And, you know, I would just encourage you, you know, read about Rush. Get interested in whatever entry point he is interesting for you because he, he it's over a long period of time. There's lots of different subjects that he gets you to, but each of them brings you a better understanding of the country you live in now and how it got to where it is. All right. Well, Stephen Freed, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Stephen Freed. He's the author of the book, Rush, Revolution, Madness, and the Visionary Doctor Who Became a Founding Father. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, stephenfreed.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash rush. We find links to resources. We delve deeper in this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanless.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over there about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay. Reminds you on a list they podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. 
With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.